Hi, and welcome to History Makers. I'm Matt Prater. Today we're speaking with Stephen Lungu from African Enterprise. Now, I've just had a brief moment to get to know Stephen, and I just tell you, this is an amazing story. African Enterprise does work in over 10 different countries around the world. Uh, They're informing, inspiring, and engaging people, uh, and uh, just incredible what they do. Let's find out a bit about Stephen's story from the beginning. Welcome to History Makers, Stephen. Thank you very much, Matt. So tell us your story. Tell us how uh, you grew up in Africa and what was life like for you? Matt, I can just say that, you know, divorce is one of the most terrible things. When husband and wife divorce, it is the children who are the victims of any divorce. And it breaks their future, their hope, their trust, and they despair. And I was one of those children because all my foundations collapsed. When father and mother divorced, all your foundations as a young boy, they collapse. And that's what happened with me. Um, in Africa, where people go to find work in different cities, my father came from Malawi, going to Zimbabwe to look for employment. And my mother with her parents came from Zambia, going to Zimbabwe, which was Rhodesia then. And uh, in their culture, those days, they used to have arranged marriages. And then uh, my mother was given to marriage at the age of 13 to a man who was about 50 years old. So the gap between a 13-year-old girl to a 50-year-old man was just too wide. And so the marriage went through, and I was born when my mother was only 14, and she almost died, and I was put in the incubator for about two months. And so... And then later on, she had another child who was my brother. His name was John. And then my sister. And then she had three kids before she was even 20. And it was through that time now, about age of four, five, every day we experienced these uh, beatings where my mother was beaten by my father, uh, being a jealous man because he had married this young girl. He expected my mother to be running around with other young boys. Each time he saw some footprints at the, at the yard, my mother would be on the receiving end. And if she swept any footprints or even bicycle tracks you know, around, around the yard, and my mother would sweep that you know, my father shouldn't see, but he would find that there was something swept, and my, fa- my father would beat my mother. So almost every day I saw blood, my mother bleeding and being beaten severely, bashed every day. She would creep under the bed, but she would be whipped even under the bed. And I would come to save my mother as a four or five-year-old boy, but my father would, you know, throw me aside. I remember one year when I was trying to save my mother, my father pushed me aside and I hit against the wall and I was bleeding on my, in my, on my head. And I looked straight in the eyes of my father, and I didn't say any word. And my father saw me, that look which was terrible. And my father said, why are you looking at me? Why are you looking at me like that? And I didn't answer him. But in my mind, I just said, you just wait. Let me grow up and I'll kill you for bashing my mother. 
So my growing up was, we had one intention to kill my father for the way he bashed my mother. So one day in Zimbabwe there, my father left home when he was given his pension, never told my mother where he was going. And he left for Malawi, which was Nyasaland those days. And then my mother couldn't take these three kids to her parents who had put her in this mess. So she just took us downtown and she said, Steve, hold your baby sister. I'll be back. And she went into the public toilet and we waited one hour, become, became two, three hours. She was gone. And I was crying. My brother was crying. My baby sister was crying and I didn't know what to do. Then the police came to my rescue and rushed with the baby to the hospital. And my brother and I were taken to the orphanage. Now, when we entered the orphanage center, it was like we were left in hell itself. But again, when they took our baby sister to the hospital, it was another separation between the two brothers and the only sister. That took about 49 years before we saw our sister again. And so it was there upon arrival, I was beaten by these bullies and I was bleeding and they had a cut on my lips. And then later on, the teachers would find me crying and being a government school, I mean, orphanage, it was like uh, to be found crying was a crime. And they asked me, why are you crying? I said, one of the boys has beaten me up. He said, tell me his name. I said, I don't know. I've just arrived. I don't know his name. And he says to me, young boy, are you playing games with me? And I thought he was joking. I said, no, I'm not playing games. I've just arrived. I'm a newcomer. And he holds my tiny little hands and ties the hands around the pole. And he slashes me 12 times. And I was screaming, wetting myself, all went to deaf ears. Following day, these boys would beat me up. They were enjoying that when they saw me being slashed 12 slashes. And then I could hardly sleep or sit on my back because of the pain. And the fifth day, I remember going in a toilet. And I shouted all by myself. I said, God, why did you leave me here? Why did you bring me in this world? So I was just, God, I hate you. I hate you. All shouting on my own because of the pain inside. So this uh, fifth day, I said to myself, Stephen, just stand like a man. The teachers don't love you. The boys don't love you. Nobody loves you. Now you have to stand like a man. So here's a tiny little boy telling yourself to stand like a man. But this particular day, I was beaten. And they took me to this pole where I was whipped 12 times. But this day was different. Because this particular day, I didn't wet myself. I didn't cry. And he whipped me 12 times, but not one drop of a tear in my ears, my eyes. And I just stood there taking every pain. And when he was undoing the ropes, he saw my eyes were dry. And he, and he felt like defeated. He said, young boy, you think you are very tough? You could stand my whippings. And so he whips me another 12, but still my eyes were dry. And he didn't realize that when a boy doesn't cry, you have actually created the most dangerous boy. Because when you suppress the tears, they become poisonous, dangerous. So I walked away from that orphanage, leaving my brother. That was also to go and take many years before I saw my brother again. So I left 
with an aim to go to the bush or maybe kill myself or whatever. But when I got into the bush, I found there was an abandoned road and started staying under that bridge, separating the sand, sleeping in the hollow, and that became my permanent home from that age until when I was 21 years old. And during the day, I would go to this uh, white suburb to scavenge in the garbage bins, eating all the junk food, the toast bread, and so on. And then later on, uh, when I was 10, started, you know, smoking my first cigarette uh, with my friends who are also orphans like me. We started smoking. Uh, that led in smoking marijuana, sniffing glue, uh, LSD, and all the different drugs. So much that I uh, became a drug addict at the age of 11. And there, with this little gang, which we named the Black Shadows, that's why my book is called Out of the Black Shadows. Now, if you met with this gang in the streets, there was no way you could walk away alive. We were all hating, uh, rejected, coming from divorced parents. We had nothing to lose. So stabbing someone with a knife was no big deal with me. There was no value of someone's life. My knife, which I had named the dragon, each mark on that knife uh, would tell you how many times that knife stabbed someone. And then breaking into homes, I found that I had two pistols. And with these two revolvers, I knew now I was in control of the streets. And no one would beat me up. And then became the leader of that gang. Now, becoming a leader of the gang, you have to be the most ruthless among your friends. And because of that suppressed uh, tears at the orphanage, they were being expressed in the streets by using a knife or a gun. If I was angry, I would shoot on your thigh uh, just to show how angry I was. And that was like a first warning. And the next thing, I would shoot on your forehead. And so... With that anger, bitterness, then bitterness against God. And at the age of about 15, joined the Freedom Fighters. And it was in the bush where we said, there's no God, there's no God. Uh, communism is good. So I embraced the Marxist ideology. They were telling us that the white men came with the Bible to Africa to brainwash the black people. Uh, they said, God is love. And while he told us that God was love, he took our country and made us slaves. So the Bible was like as it were the book of slavery. So never believe anything from a white man's book. After all, Jesus was a white man. How do you believe in a white man's God? We must believe in our forefathers, you know, spirits. So I looked at Jesus as one of the oppressors. And so... I said, I'll kill every Christian who carries a Bible and blow up all church buildings where they are preaching the word of God. So with that anger and bitterness against Christianity, one day when I was 20 years old, they said, oh, let's go and blow up a bank and then steal all the monies and get the monies to the bush, to the freedom fighters. But when we got, as we were going to the, that um, uh, bank carrying our explosives, and we saw this big tent by the roadside, which was from Johannesburg. And anything from South Africa was a taboo because of the apartheid system they had. So I said, guys, before we get to the bank, let's surround this big tent where they're preaching the word of God. 
So I said, seven o'clock on the dot, I'll blow the whistle and throw the bombs at one time. And I want every person inside to die. One of my friends said, well, Steve, we still have five minutes. What do we do in five minutes? I said, well, um, up to now, I don't understand why we didn't blow it up at five two. And I said, well, since we still have five minutes, let's go inside for two minutes only, not more than two minutes. And that was a good mistake to give God two minutes. So we went inside, sat right back there, and they were singing choruses. And my friends, we started singing out of tune, disturbing the meeting, making all sorts of noise. And one of the preachers came and touched my shoulder, said, boys, please, you are making noise. Can you keep quiet? And I pulled out my knife. I said, preacher, if you ever tell me to keep quiet, I'll kill you right now. Never touch me. And the woman jumped and said, please, walk away. These boys are dangerous. And so he walks away. That preacher walks away. And I started tossing my knife up and down. And then suddenly in front of us, they invited the beautiful girl from Johannesburg. She was very, very pretty. And that put me off balance because she was real pretty. And I couldn't reconcile beauty and Christianity. I used to think Christianity is for the old, old grannies who are about to die or maybe ugly girls with the wrong figures. And so because they were so ugly, so they needed to be Christians. And so such a pretty girl becoming a Christian, I said, what's going on? She should show off a beautiful body to men. But the more she shared the testimony, there was a, a glow around her, something even my friends couldn't see it. She was shining with the glory of God. Then she invited another black evangelist from South Africa. He read two verses, Romans 6 verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. And then he read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, he became poor, that through his poverty you may be rich in Christ. And he kept quiet. And he said, today I'm going to speak about God's transaction, that if you surrender your life to Jesus, you give your everything to Jesus, in return he's going to give you his forgiveness, joy, peace, and eternal life. And all that is in one package. But what he needs is all of you. Surrender your life and commit your life to Jesus. So I said, well, to me, in my mind, I said, that's a big, good deal. But he spoke about this love of Jesus, that God demonstrated that love by being rejected when he was in his mother's womb before he was born. And born in a manger because all the hotels were full. And he said, there are so many people, their lives are so full with the worldly things, and God doesn't have a space for their lives. And then he spoke about, you know, Jesus having a borrowed donkey and Jesus having a borrowed house for his last supper. But Jesus also had a borrowed cross where he hung, where he was crucified. That cross was not his. It belonged to Barabbas. In other words, a picture of God taking our place, that me a sinner, you a sinner, Jesus taking my place, the guilt of my sin on the cross. And when he spoke about that, I said, well, what kind of love is that? That he should take my sins, the things I've done. But he said when Jesus died, he was buried in a borrowed grave. Then in my mind, I said, how can the Son of God have everything borrowed? 
And then he says, He died, but the third day he rose again and went to sit on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And then from there is coming again. But when he comes, he's not going to be the Savior. He's going to be the God of judgment. And now that's the part of the message I didn't like. Because as he spoke about the judgment of God, he would speak about every kind of sin I had committed, and I didn't like his finger. Every time he pointed that finger like it was aimed at me, no matter which direction, whether I pointed sideways or upwards, but like the finger was aimed at me. So I pulled out my knife about to kill my friend. I said, how can you tell the preacher about my sins? And then he pulled out. He said, I also kill you. You told him about mine too. And then with that pointing finger, I said, well, I will be more clever than the preacher. So this time when he would point that finger, I would duck down behind someone's back to avoid the finger. So I was going up and down, up and down. But literally did I know that you can never hide from the finger of God. And I broke down in tears and went forward with my bombs and my guns. And that night became my turning point when I invited Jesus into my life. And I was born again. My sins were forgiven. But the miracle, the greatest miracle happened. That all my sins were gone. But then the other miracle is that I stopped swearing. I used to have a, you know, dead, dead mouth. Every second word was bad. And the third miracle is that I was struggling to stop drugs. But that night was like a snap. Everything left me. The joy, the peace. I felt like here is a young little bird, you know, released from the cage. I had been in the cage of the devil for many years, bound by sin. But now I was a free man at last. My freedom being in Christ Jesus, knowing this peace, the joy, what a glorious thing it was. And following day, I went to the police to surrender myself. Police said, if your Jesus has forgiven you, we forgive you too. So I felt heaven had forgiven me and the government forgave me. And I went into the homes where I used to break into doing armed robberies. I went to all those homes to ask for forgiveness. And they all forgave me. And the things I had stolen, I had to retain them. And I had to do restitution as a child of God, a new creature in Jesus Christ, with the joy and the peace of Christ. And then later on, we were a boy who had no you know, education. But God was so good that... Another, uh, when I was 21 years, a white missionary adopted me, and for the first time I started reading and writing, and he gave me the first pair of shoes in my life. And so I was 22 years old when I f- first wore my pair of shoes, and I was walking like a robot because I had never worn shoes before. But uh, the joy of witnessing in trains, in buses, and uh, Every place, I just wanted to tell everyone what God had done for me. So I want to thank God that uh, Jesus has saved me, has taken a nobody and made me a somebody. And now I can speak about 10 languages fluently as I go across Africa and the world, preaching about God's love and God's grace that, you know, a broken heart and a broken relationship can be reconciled 
with God. Now, Stephen, you know, this is just one of the most inspiring stories. Uh, if people want to find out more about what you do at African Enterprise, uh, they can go to look at the website. But just tell us briefly, what, what do you do in Afri- African Enterprise? You're in 10 different countries? Yeah. Um, African Enterprise was called by God through Michael Cassidy in 1961, a white South African but born in South Africa and is a white black man. <laughs> and uh, we thank God that when he had a vision to reach out to Africa, the four strategies of African enterprises, number one, our heartbeat priority is to evangelize the cities of Africa. And our mission statement says evangelizing the cities of Africa in word and deed in partnership with, with the church. So the word and deed is like a bird flying with two wings. They flap together. So evangelism and social concern has to go together. So that's what we do in Africa, that when we preach the gospel, thousands of people come to Jesus. And if there is a continent where God is moving, it is Africa. And it's an exciting place to serve God. But thousands, you know, people come to Jesus. You know, they're poor, they're prostitutes, the street kids. You don't just say to them, God bless you. You have to also to look on the other side. That's why we have to come with the deed part, social concern. But uh, the third, you know, component in our ministry is uh, peace building and reconciliation. As you know, in Africa also, there's so much strife, you know, tribalism and so on. AE, African Enterprise, comes in to bring peace and reconciliation among the rivals and, and the, you know, rebel soldiers and government soldiers. We have worked in Rwanda. We, have, we are still working in Burundi now where we have integrated the rebel soldiers and the government soldiers coming together. Wonderful. And if anyone would like to uh, support or be involved in African Enterprise, the website is africanenterprise.com.au. And they have an Australian office in Sydney if you'd like to contact them here as well. Well, Stephen, I'm just so excited. You know, on History Makers, we've interviewed a few ministries from Africa now. We've talked to Michelle Perry. We've talked to Suppressor Sitoli. We've talked to Sam Childers, the machine gun preacher. We've had a whole bunch of different people. It's amazing what God is doing in Africa. And uh, we pray for the Lord's blessing on you. Thank you. And uh, thank you so much for your time, mate. I reckon you're a history maker. Thank you very much. Thank you. God bless. If you'd like to download this interview, just go to www.historymakersradio.com. And also you can make a donation if you'd like. I'm Matt Prater. Have a great week. History Makers.